Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Uh, we have two uh, wonderful writers today, um, Mike Young and uh, Jamie Iredell. Mike Young, Jamie Iredell. <laughs> you can do that, you fine. <laughs> you know, these guys traveled a long way, you know what I'm saying? Um, and what will happen is Mike will read first, then Jamie. I'll introduce uh, both of them. So I want to read uh, what's been said about... Um, about uh, Mike Young. Mike Young is young, <laughs> is young, and his song is real. This book is full of comedy, radiance, and devastation, said Sam Lipsight. Um, Kev Kevin Sampsel said, I believe in Mike Young. I will follow his stories wherever they lead me. They are so fresh and full of the weirdest Americana. If Mike Young were a cult leader, I'd think his cool. I'd drink his Kool-Aid, and it would feel electric. That's a. Those are pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And then we have uh, Jamie. Jamie Ardell can spin around with a disc in his hand, and then throw that disc incredible distances. He can also do freakish things with words, said Michael Kimball, author of Dear Everybody. And Jamie Ireland lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He is the author of Prose, Poems, and Novel. And please visit his blog at jamieardell.blogspot.com. At this time, please welcome Mike Young. All right. Thanks, guys, for coming out. This is our last stop. We started in Seattle. Uh, we drove quite a ways. We had a lot. We listened to a lot of, listened to a lot of some music that I knew the words to, and some music I didn't know the words to. Um, and then we did other stuff too. We got hit by a tsunami yesterday. Um, that was the one bad thing about the tour was a tsunami that wasn't real. And that's like you know, if that's the one bad thing about your life is a fake tsunami, you're doing okay. I'm going to read um, a little thing and then the beginning of a longer thing. So this is called The Peaches Are Cheap. It's August, and it smells like grass and cranberry fruit snacks. I pick my brother up from the post office where he works. When he gets in, he says, let me take off these shoes. We drive and see things, old fences, a barbecue in a motel courtyard. Are you guys semi or official or what? I ask. We see hobos in swimming trunks, chlorine hands, this boy with a mohawk playing the violin on a porch. Earlier this summer, my brother delivered a J.C. Penny catalog to the wrong apartment number. He met this woman there. She was spraying raid around her windowsill. Now they fuck. It's something, my brother says. It's not letting down. So why does she leave Eugene again? I didn't tell you in the first place. This guy, this stalker guy, right? He breaks in and hangs out in her balcony. She finds him there saying something. I, I don't remember what. We see shirtless skateboarders, shoes tied to power lines, evening sunlight that falls like an arm across a pillow. That's sad, I say. It's creepy as shit. 
I shrug. What now? I think I'll hit her with a pipe wrench. We laugh. We see dust motes and Kool-Aid stains, sweat, our own thoughts of shower curtains and flesh. There's a scab under my eye, so I scratch it. I want to turn into a firecracker, I say. He spits. I want to turn into a basketball star. It's one of our tired little games. Let's learn to drive steamships, I say. He kind of smiles. We go to the supermarket and buy canned peaches. The cashier squints at my brother. He winks and steals a penny from the charity saucer. Out in the parking lot, we eat the peaches with our car doors open. I'll tell you, my brother says, and he sighs. We used to shove each other off a of rope swing, so we used to shove each other off of fire escapes. Now I work for the gas company. He works at the post office. I nod. Sometimes under this drawl of light, a dying will find your jaw. There are old fences and old dogs all over this town. By September, my brother will be seeing the supermarket teller and scoring free beer. I drop him off at his place. Before he leaves, he leans into my window for a long time. Then he thanks me for the ride. I think to ask him about playing pool, about buying a pizza. Instead, I say, tomorrow, right? Like Batman, same time, same channel. No shit, he says. He laughs and leaves, hands in his back pockets. The sun hits him like a cigarette ad. It's August, and it smells like wrenches, grass, distant water. I drive home with my eyes open, then I drive with them closed, hoping to hit something, anything, like a refrigerator box, or a wall of lightning bugs, or a kid on his bicycle, the only thing he really loves. So now, so that was a really short one that makes, that, you know, gets you sad So you, before you read the rest of it. Um, and so now I'm gonna read the beginning of a longer one. It's like set outside of Mount Shasta. We drove down Mount Shasta. I, how fast can I tell the, the beer Lemurian story? Because it's really good. Can I tell it really fast? Okay, so in Weed, California, outside of Mount Shasta, um, first there's these people who think aliens live in Mount Shasta, right? And these aliens are named Lemurians, okay? And there's this brewery in Weed, California, and they thought it would be funny to make a beer called the Lemurian Lager. Um, and then one day at the brewery, this group of people, all dressed in white, you know, like white sandals and shit, like show up at the brewery, and they don't say anything, and they have this letter that they bring to the president of the brewery, and they stand there, like not saying anything until he reads the letter. And so he reads the letter, and, and it says, Lemurians are 5,000 years old, they live in the mountain, and they don't drink beer. So cease and desist with the Lemurian lager, right? That's what the letter says. And so they're so freaked out that they canceled it, or they changed the name of it or something. But Mount Shasta is a weird place, and this is about a tiny baby in Mount Shasta. We found the baby in the medicine cabinet. The kid smelled like hickory and something else. Deodorant? I creaked the cabinet's joints and witnessed a three-inch baby yawn and grump and paw the air with an experimental baby fist. Then I shut the cabinet and bit my knuckles. Jesus fuck, I said. And my wife, Johnny May, said, do what? She was standing in the bathtub with a screwdriver, cleaning the shower head of pebbles and silt. Her jeans were rolled up to her ankles. She wore a sports bra. I pointed at the cabinet. She gouged the shower head. What did you do to the cabinet? 
You'd think Johnny May would have heard him when we walked in, maybe smelled him. She's good like that. If this doesn't come up later, I met Johnny May under the televised grace of a long throw by Steve Young to Jerry Rice in the 1994 Super Bowl. This was at the Nugget, which, which has since shut. Used to be you went there already sorry for something, practicing to get less sorry, and pretending to get more. After Rice crossed the goal line, I high-fived Johnny May. Next day, I took her out for steaks at the runoff grill. She lost an earring in my truck, called after I dropped her off, and I drove back to her place so she could crawl around trying to find it. So great, I'm blushing, is what she said, and I studied her ass as she quested. Babe, I said, this is good luck. Then she sat up on her knees, looked at me, and combed her fingers down my beard until they rested on my neck. She squeezed. Yeah, good luck. But luck really is for squinters and liars. Nobody else wants near the shit. What our luck gave us was this, the ex-medicine cabinet of Kang and Cassie, where a fuzz-skulled doughboy now gurgled on the bottom shelf, head no bigger than the toothpaste cap beside him. Johnny May said, is that a doll? And took a better look. Then she crossed herself with the screwdriver. She took a bushel of sanitary wipes from our kit, swaddled the baby in those, like how you might save a ladybug. Aren't those chemical? I said. They're the soft kind. She squinted at the baby, flexing her palm around him. It's a boy. You can't hardly see his little dawdle, but it's definitely a boy. I don't know what I was expecting, but Johnny May's face kept all crinkled. She didn't coo or glow. What she did was sit on the toilet lid and give the spectyke her pinky to gnaw. She whispered for me to go outside and call Towns. He owned the apartments we managed and didn't pay us any extra to scrub grout, but he also didn't pay anybody. This left us to ape the work of professionals in abandoned apartments. Per typical, Johnny May dropped the elbow grease, mopping, busting cobwebs, bombing the stove, and I helped by watching the industrial cleaner foam. And I yodeled and snooped. They had left light fixtures full of dead silverfish and a carpet of cat piss. Most impressive, shapes, big polygons, squiggled in permanent marker all over the walls. Johnny May had a hell of a time ragging that off. She made me help, even. We got a little high off our products, but I turned sober as a toothache, watching this tiny baby fuss itself in Johnny May's hand. She kept the other hand underneath, like a trapeze net, I guess. When I started to call Towns in the bathroom, Johnny May shook her head. Too loud, she mouthed. She looked at the baby and back at me. Right? She mouthed. On the stoop outside, I interrupted Towns' afternoon racquetball. Wish I still had a pager, he huffed. There's my Christmas list, Waylon. Of the people who elect to call me Waylon instead of Len, Towns is the only one safe from my love. Very, very safe. I asked if he remembered Kang and Cassie, and he grunted. Out of the question, he said. In fact, I'm making a milkshake out of their goddamn deposit, all the shit they caused me. Not the issue, I said. Listen, they left a kid in the apartment. Hold up, Towns said. I could hear him leave the echoes of the racquetball court. Like, alive? Is this kid alive? Does he speak English? Well, it's a, it's a baby, kind of, I said. Town sighed. Well, the baby we should probably give back. You should see it, I said. It's sort of the thing you need to see. 
What, babies? I'm a baby judge? I held the phone to my neck and tried to get calm. Around me, the town was faking a spring thaw. Mounds of dirty snow dribbled away into puddles of moon-colored soot. People couldn't decide whether to pull their beanies all the way over their ears. Everything in Dunsmuir is on a slope, and our apartment complex is nicely propped. It doesn't brush I-5 too bad, and from our stoop I can see everything from sidewalks to boxcars. Look, I'm no homebody. I've sown my oats. Toked up with hookers in Vancouver, skirted arrest with cousins in the Ozarks. Yet only in Dunsmuir do I sleep right. Hippies say Shasta's made of magnetic lava or some shit, but I say it's winter. Winter in the mountains strands you pretty good, and there's something about growing up in a stranded town. It makes the larger world seem mostly the headache of tire chains. From the stoop, the town looks sweet and humble, and I did not want the stress of introducing freakish bullshit. Keeping life steady is a strain. Often all I can do is close one eye like I'm measuring, and sometimes I have to close both. Don't do any calling, I told Towns. Just come over and have a look. This baby, well, it's, it's pretty little. Is it healthy? Tell Johnny May. Make her fix it. Believe me, she's on it. Listen, Towns said, if you need to buy diapers or peas or whatever, we can pencil that in. We can move the numbers around. He was talking quicker now, and I knew from experience he was probably picking his teeth with his tongue. Where will it sleep? It can't sleep in the apartment. That's not safe. You guys got a crib? Is there a crib in the shed? Where the baby slept that night was in our sock drawer. Towns didn't come over until the next day, and when he saw the baby, he wanted to call the SBCA. But that night, Johnny May arranged a pillow of a needle cushion and a blanket of a wool tube sock. We tried to feed the baby bits of noodle, but he cried. I wanted to feed him some bread, but all we had was multigrain, and I worried he'd choke on the little seeds or germ or whatever those are. What he did like was mashed potatoes, tiny scoops. Johnny May bathed him in a saucepan, and when I tried to touch him, he peed on my finger. The pee felt like an eyedropper of hot water. It's not even yellow, I said, watching the streak run. I kind of want to lick it. Johnny May guffed and shook her head. Baby's pee clear. Come on, Len, you know that. Going to bed, she told me the sock drawer was fine, but I had my doubts. We need to leave it open a little, I said, for air. And can we hear him if he needs something? Jesus, she said. She was standing at the dresser, tucking him in. Despite her earlier worries, the baby seemed okay with our volume. Most of what he did was nap. We'll be right here, she said, pointing at our bed. Let's see, I said. We should, get, we should hit the toy aisle. We should get in some tea sets or tiny pacifiers and really tiny mittens. He's not a toy, Johnny May said. I know that, I said. My brain works better out loud. Give me some credit here. She left the sock drawer open and came to bed clicking off the lamp and nudging me aside so she could burrow under the comforter. He's just a little off, she said. He hasn't caught up yet. She faced the wall. I went to rub her shoulders, but she wriggled away. No, my neck, she said. What do we call him? I asked, hand on her neck. She didn't answer. She scraped some plaster off the wall. Betty's got a name already, she said. They come like that. 
Thank you. Um, thanks, you guys, for coming out. And um, L.A. I don't know. L.A. is weird. I'm from Northern California. So um, some of the stuff that I'm going to read is about parts of Northern California and Nevada. Um, I got this first book that I don't think they have copies of here. It's called Prose, Poems, a Novel. Um, I got some copies of it in case anybody is like, I, I'm dying to have it. Um, and it's, uh, it kind of works as a, uh, it kind of works as a, each little piece is kind of like its own individual story or poem written in prose, but taken together, there's an overarching, um, narrative to it. So, um, all right. Bob and Chris Henning and me, we drove into the desert to spotlight coyotes and jack bunnies. I bounced along in the truck's extra cab drinking Budweiser, like I'd just come in from a desert hall. But it was the other way around. When the rabbits crossed into the path of our spotlight, this thing like a million candles, a miniature sun, some would stop, their little mouths nibbling something, their eyes glowing red. We popped them off with the 12-gauge, the 9-millimeter, and Bob's 357 Maximum, a bazooka. When it fired, a tiny Hiroshima cauliflowered in the air and its target disintegrated. Bob laughed and said, I love killing shit. We picked up a pair of distant glowing eyes, a coyote. Bob and Chris fired away, but before we reached the spot, we had bowled the tires over a billion sagebrush clumps. When we stopped, the hiss was like a snake's with endless lungs. This was funny because a hippie at Burning Man once told Chris Henning, a Nevada native, not to park his truck on top of the sagebrush. Chris said, fuck you, hippie. He'd lived in this desert his whole goddamn life, and he knew that he wouldn't goddamn hurt the goddamn sagebrush. I said, gun it. We lost Bob when we bumped into a wash. He seemed to jump out of the bed without legs, a beach ball that had sprouted a head and arms. We fell to walking two miles from the highway. Before leaving under the truck seats, we found a flask half full of year-old tequila that made me puke up some of my Budweiser. The Milky Way made a beach in the middle of the sea of the sky. The coyotes yipped around us, a chorus. It was so dark we could have been walking in nothing, back in the womb. When the cops said, you boys been drinking? Bob and Chris both said no. But me, I was slow and said, a little. The bay and the lake and the mountains gleamed emerald, and our skin glistened from its water. The cliffs rose out of the lake like skyscrapers from a boulevard. They were bald as boxers, the cliffs. I mean boxers as in fighters. I'm just saying that it seems these days that all boxers shave their heads, and the cliffs were like that, treeless. I had dived in from a rock that stuck out from the beach like an exploding zit, forgetting my wallet folded up in my pocket. Now, as we drove away, with the green bay growing into its own tiny lake in the rear view, my driver's license had oozed and bled, and I couldn't make out my own picture, nor my name, birth date, the color of my eyes, thankfully, my weight, none of it, all gone.
Mike rode next to me. We passed a housing construction site covered up in blue tarp against the rain. Mike said, in the construction community, we call that a tarp. He was full of redundancies, and our girlfriend's eyes rolled in the back seat. Some asshole in a jacked-up four-wheeler jumped all over my ass. I could tell that he himself was the kind of guy who'd say, jacked up, with all seriousness. Oakley gators wrapped around his eyes. I said, I'm going to brake check this jacked-up truck. The girls' mouths drew O's in the air. Mike said, you girls chill. We're going to kick some ass. At the Little Waldorf, which everyone called The Wall, boar's heads snouted from the knotty pine, and bad punk bands spit at the college crowds. I'd wanted my five dollars back, and the bass player said, open your mouth. Before he could wad the bill in, I'd balled his collar in my fist and felt a cheek squish against my knuckles. Then someone yelled Bender's name, and Jason was routing a guy who had a shaved head. Jason's arms worked like twin sets of a steam locomotive's main rods. Larry soared over the gathering bouncers, and his cast-encrusted hand rebroke on Baldy's head and sent him to the sticky concrete. On the way out, on Sierra Street, when the cops asked if we'd seen a fight, we accurately de described those we imagined to be involved. Years later, after Jason's funeral, we'd remember that night, what a scrapper he was, the time we fought at Chewy and Jugs, and Jason lost his glasses. Next day, he slumped into the bar after the glasses and found faggot etched backwards on the lens, so he'd always read it for the rest of his life. I like to imagine that when the head-on happened, Jason was happily drunk in the passenger seat, and Nick just swerved a bit, the headlights coming like coyote eyes at the other end of a flashlight. Last, when the cars met, it was like being punched. For a second, everything bright, bright white, then black, then nothing. So that's that book, um, or at least some of it. Um, this, is a, this is this new book that came out. It's called The, the Book of Freaks. And it's kind of like a, um, like a fake encyclopedia. Um, it's all in alphabetical order. And um, my publisher described it pretty well, I think. He said that it's like um, reading a bunch of unreliable Wikipedia entries. <laughs> so um, here's one, here's one um, entry in the Book of Freaks that's called uh, Americans. If you visit the United States of America, you're greeted by a Haitian. Your passport's examined by a Jamaican. Your baggage tossed from an aluminum belly by Mexicans. No one ever says that they're American. Ask any of them, and they're Irish, or Inuit, or Ivory Coastian. Almost all of them are Puerto Ricans. Because of this global attitude, Americans think they own everything, especially America. And by that, they mean Earth. Americans will tell you that your country has terrible Mexican food. They especially dislike Mexico's Mexican food. Americans reek of petroleum and dream of opening McDonald's on distant planets, which is why all American astronomers are in pursuit of extrasolar habitats. 
Instead of palms and fingers, Americans shake with a hamburger patty and frankfurters. And even the frankfurters, they'll tell you, are better than frankfurtian frankfurters. The problem with Americans is their annoying politeness. They say, have some cholesterol. Does your daughter speak American? Your daughter does not. Yet fret not, the American doesn't care. If you do not understand American now, you soon will. This freak is called asshole. This variety of human can be seen in urban areas across planet Earth. He struts down the street, which is more like an avenue, it is so wide. Skyscrapers scrape the edge of the sky, should we consider edge as troposphere. Far above the car's roofs and above this guy's fauxhawk, both of which are also tropospheric. Below his loafers, the sidewalk glitters with spit-out wads of chewing gum, many of which spat by our men, for this man decided long ago not to believe in garbage cans. He eschews recycling. All areas where this filth can be found is called crust. This guy struts and never walks. And while doing so, he reads and sends text messages and emails from his smartphone, so never walks in a straight line. It's insufferable to find oneself attempting to pass this man for his weaving. He has a girlfriend, and at one time previously, a boyfriend. The boyfriend this guy left, feeling like one was what one does quitting in the middle of high school baseball tryouts, that it just wasn't his thing, not his calling. This man, the one we're talking about, is an asshole. Um, all right, let's see. Let's get out of the A's and B's for a minute. And let's do, uh, let's do, uh, this freak is called environmentalists. These humans have taken a political and ethical point of view and transformed it into a religion. Their chief deity is Henry David Thoreau, who after undergoing a transformative experience, some have called it a vision quest, upon a deserted lake shore, emerged changed even down to his name. Afterwards, he went as Henry. Henry created a son who was not born, but evolved, and lived to spread the word of his evolution, Charles. Thus combined, the two holy texts of environmentalism are Walden and the origin of species. Modern environmentalists hold worship sometimes at the base of, and sometimes in the canopy of, rather large trees. Many environmentalists take pilgrimages to their holy land of California and can often be found in their holy city of San Francisco, although sizable populations of environmentalists can be found in the states of Oregon and Washington as well. Take, for instance, a particular environmentalist found holding services at the base of a red maple just across the border in an I-5 rest area. He hugged this tree, pressing his cheek upon its bark until a bark interrupted his reverie, and the offending dog lifted a leg in salute of the man-tree. The dog blissfully remained unaware of actually being two distinct individual life forms. 
The environmentalist as, has as one of his many commandments to not harm living creatures, and thus the environmentalist stared peacefully while the dog, a Scotch terrier, kicked up the grass to cover his deed. But walking back to his car, among the sins of this particular environmentalist, the man could be heard issuing a stream of his lord's names used in, va in vain. David goddamn dog motherfucking Darwin damn it pissed all over my fucking leg. And through this is revealed the many incongruities and contradictions that most organized religions are beset by. Some of them are really, really short, like that. This one's called fuckers. Contrary to one of the Oxford English Dictionary's definitions of the singular version of this noun, fuckers are very rarely engaged in the act of fucking. <laughs> All right, this one's called uh, gigantomastia. Humans who suffer from this condition experience rapid and unusual growth of the breasts. That is not what actually concerns the compilers of this volume. What does interest us is the fact that Soleil Moon Fry, the child star famous for her role as Punky Brewster, is among the few sufferers of this connective tissue disease. To be honest, even that fact is not what really concerns us. Not so much as the fact of the existence of Punky Brewster. Punky Brewster was a character who epitomized the burgeoning emotional and psychological strength of females in popular media portrayals in the 1980s. We are also surprised that television executives did not see the verisimilitude of such writing and performances until the 1980s. All this said, the title of this entry should not go unnoticed. If you have not viewed images of Punky Brewster prior to breast reduction, then you again will be impressed at the strength of character required to carry such a burden. Gigantomastia can cause considerable pain and discomfort. Finally though, what truly designates Punky Brewster a freak is the actress who breathed her the, breathed her the life, Soleil Moon Fry. She remains happily married and a mother to two children who suffer from celebrity name syndrome. Regardless, instinctively, Soleil Moon Fry is by all accounts a good mother. All right, I'm just going to read a couple more and wrap this thing up. Nobody here is from Denver, are they? Okay. If, you're, if, you have, if you have relatives in Denver, then this might not apply to them, but. <laughs> um, this is called jerks. This is the pseudoscientific classification for members of law enforcement in the city of Denver, Colorado. The correct appellation for, this, for these individuals is pigs. However, the volume's compilers have exhausted the entries under P and have therefore striven to endure in other areas of the English alphabet. Thus, jerks are known for their totalitarian demeanor and their flat-top haircuts. Most jerks can be seen sporting Kevlar in the middle of malls, downtown streets, and in the lobbies of many of Denver's upscale hotels. Should you find yourself sauntering down a Denverian quai and you are accosted by a jerk, 
It is likely because you are an African, African-American, Mexican, Mexican-American, basically anything other than Caucasian-American. Or you might appear to be white, but God forbid your lips lisp anything other than the most Midwestern of accents. In such instances, jerks are likely to ask you, where are you going? Where have you been? Despite their lack of knowledge concerning the short fictions of Joyce Carol Oates, American fiction writer, born June 16, 1938. In fact, you would be in trouble too if you looked like Joyce Carol Oates, since she carries a distinctively intellectual demeanor, and jerks are well known for their dislike of smarty smarties. Jerks prefer people like them, whom they'll have you know are Americans. See Americans, page seven. As we have already demonstrated, this is among the unfortunate side effects of Americans. All right, one more, real fast. And, uh, all right. So that uh, brief bio that, um, the gentleman, I'm sorry, I, for, I forgot your name, man. Okay, Noel. Jo, no, jo, Noel or? Noel. Noel. Noel, I'm sorry. I'm really bad at that. But when Noel was reading this, uh, Michael Kimball said that I used to throw the discus in high school and I told him that. So he decided to put that into a blurb, which I thought was kind of funny. But um, anyway, this is called United Arab Emirations, which I don't think is the actual correct terminology for people of that, um, of that nation, but it sounds funny when you say it that way. So. What most do not know about United Arab Emirations is their prowess with the discus. Even the minutest of Emirations can hurl a discus, spinning and skimming moisture from the air for more than a hundred meters. This was discovered, the cover removed, and what was underneath shown to the rest of the world in California, where there are few United Arab Emirations. But those who migrated came to the brink of American Olympic glory, only to be ousted for perform performance drug abuse. Next to the discus, United Arab Emirations are adept club openers, managers, and bouncers. One can find these failed Olympic hopefuls admiring their slicked oiled locks in the ever-present mirrors walling up these otherwise velveted interiors. Should you, man, you're an idiot if you do, but anyway, show up to an, to an Emirations Club female-less, then never mind your Friday night. No, no, my friend, there are 24-hour diners where losers like you can dip french fries into your heinz and taste yourself getting fatter. This is only because of the United Emir Arab Emirations' extreme appreciation for all things beautiful. The compilers of this volume have been in a taxi captained by one of these countrymen, a taxi that taxied past a glorious wreck. Forget the fact that the compilers were late for an important lecture on the merits of Chekhovian description techniques in fiction. This cab driver slowed to a halt, admiring the twisted and shining chrome, dripping with the drizzle raining down. The last sputter of exhaust and steam from the overturned undercarriage. The bright splash of red from the crying woman's sweatshirt. This emiration could have been admiring the engineering feat and beauty of his home country's mastery with a skyscraper. Their towers much higher than any mountain in the United Arab Emirates. 
or their ability to adopt capitalism, their tireless lust for improvement. My God, said the Emiratian, look at that. Thanks. <laughs> okay, you guys got to get back up here. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for that book? Uh, for, oh, for this one? Yeah, yeah, like the process. Uh, yeah, I guess I, um, basically I was just kind of talking shit. <laughs> and um, I, wrote, I wrote like most of the book on my phone. Oh. Yeah, so it was like, uh, I used the notes function. And um, I used that app. And so it'd be like, you know, I'd, uh, I have like a little bit of time in, like, in between like, I don't know, going to pick up my wife from work or, you know, sitting in a bar or something and I forgot my computer and be like, all right, I want to write. So I just kind of write something out and I realized that like, oh, I kind of had things happening so I started to collect them. And then eventually kind of came up with the conceit that it's like an encyclopedia. Um, so it kind of happened like as a process, really. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Any other questions for me or Mike? How was it getting your collections published? What's that? How was it getting your collections published? Is it easy, hard? It's pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th well, say, I'd say... It's kind of book where I have all these trash talking <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're kind of they're trash talking, but, you know, I try to... I think they try to balance between, you know, like say like, you know, the Americans one is just all full of these uh, stereotypes, right? But, um, you know, at, like at the end of it, I want the, the speaker of the book to kind of acknowledge that the people are really real people in that, you know, they are, Ameri as probably most of us are Americans in this room, you know, we're pretty known for being like really extremely polite and like, welcoming people. Most of us, I guess, are, I don't want, I'm using a stereotype right now, so I guess you can't avoid them. But I wanted to temper it with like, okay, here's ridiculous things about Americans with like, you know, sometimes they're really beautiful, you know. So, but yeah, publishing, publishing them is, well, I, this was actually, I mean, this one was really hard. I sent out, this is my first book, so I published like parts of it, I published all the sections of it as chapbooks, and then, um, collected them into this one book and then sent it off to, to get published. And it probably got rejected like six times before it got accepted somewhere. Um, this one I happened to kind of get lucky. I was reading in Seattle last year and um, my publisher for this book was at that reading and I read from the book before it was accepted and he really loved it and he said, I want to see the, I want to see that book. So I didn't really have to do as much work with this one. I don't know what you're books were like getting those published um this this book i the, the the title of it look look feathers right um i grew up in northern california on the feather river um up there near chico and the the story of how the feather river was so named was when the spanish were like sailing along in the sacramento river right it was night and they fell asleep and they turned on to this smaller river and they were sailing along and they woke up their lookout was shouting, mira, mira las plumas, um, like, look, look at all the feathers. And the river they were on was covered with white feathers. And so they decided that was a significant event, and they were going to call the river the Feather River. 
Um, so that is way more interesting than the story of how I got the book published. Um, <laughs> so I just sent it to the press. <laughs> See? All right. Any more questions? There's no questions. Thanks a lot, y'all, for coming out. Thanks for coming out. Appreciate it. I will move this far away, bring out a table, and I'll sit behind this. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.